Volume One, Chapter Three of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume One, Chapter Three. Happy, thrice happy, were the months and weeks and hours of that year. Friendship, hand in hand with admiration, tenderness, and respect, built a bower of delight in my heart, late rough as an untrod wild in America, as the homeless wind or herbless sea. Insatiate thirst for knowledge and boundless affection for Adrian combined to keep both my heart and understanding occupied, and I was consequently happy. What happiness is so true and unclouded as the overflowing and talkative delight of young people? In our boat, upon my native lake, beside the streams and the pale bordering poplars, in valley and over hill, my crook thrown aside, a nobler flock to tend than silly sheep, even a flock of newborn ideas, I read or listened to Adrian and his discourse, whether it concerned his love or his theories for the improvement of man, alike entranced me. Sometimes my lawless mood would return, my love of peril, my resistance to authority, but this was in his absence. Under the mild sway of his dear eyes I was obedient and good as a boy of five years old who does his mother's bidding. After a residence of about a year at Allswater, Adrian visited London, and came back full of plans for our benefit. "'You must begin life,' he said. "'You are seventeen, and longer delay would render the necessary apprenticeship more and more irksome. He foresaw that his own life would be one of struggle, and I must partake his labours with him.' the better to fit me for this task we must now separate. He found my name a good passport to preferment, and he had procured for me the situation of private secretary to the ambassador at Vienna, where I should enter on my career under the best auspices. In two years I should return to my country, with a name well known and a reputation already founded. And Perdita? Perdita was to become the pupil, friend, and younger sister of Evadne. With his usual thoughtfulness he had provided for her independence in this situation. How refuse the offers of this generous friend? I did not wish to refuse them, but in my heart of hearts I made a vow to devote life, knowledge, and power, all of which, inasmuch as they were of any value, he had bestowed on me, all, all my capacities and hopes, to him alone I would devote. Thus I promised myself, as I journeyed towards my destination with roused and ardent expectation expectation of the fulfillment of all that in boyhood we promise ourselves of power and enjoyment in maturity. Methought the time was now arrived, when childish occupations laid aside, I should enter into life. Even in the Elysian fields Virgil describes the souls of the happy as eager to drink of the wave which was to restore them to this mortal coil. The young are seldom in Elysium, for their desires, outstripping possibility, leave them as poor as a moneyless debtor. We are told by the wisest philosophers of the dangers of the world, the deceits of men, and the treason of our own hearts. But not the less fearlessly does each put off his frail bark from the port, spread the sail, and strain his oar, to attain the multitudinous streams of the sea of life. How few in use prime moor their vessels on the golden sands, and collect the painted shells that strew them. But all, at close of day, with riven planks and rent canvas make for shore, and are either wrecked ere they reach it, or find some wave-beaten haven, some desert strand, whereupon to cast themselves and die unmourned. A truce to philosophy. Life is before me, and I rush into possession. Hope, glory, love, and blameless ambition are my guides, and my soul knows no dread. What has been, though sweet, is gone. 
the present is good only because it is about to change, and then to come is all my own. Do I fear that my heart palpitates? High aspirations cause the flow of my blood. My eyes seem to penetrate the cloudy midnight of time, and to discern within the depths of its darkness the fruition of all my soul desires. Now pause. During my journey I might dream, and with buoyant wings reach the summit of life's high edifice. Now that I am arrived at its base, my pinions are furled, and the mighty stairs are before me, and step by step I must ascend the wondrous fane. Speak, what door is opened? Behold me in a new capacity, a young diplomatist, one among the pleasure-seeking society of a gay city, a youth of promise, favorite of the ambassador. All was strange and admirable to the shepherd of Cumberland. With breathless amaze I entered on the gay scene, whose actors were the lilies glorious as Solomon, who toil not, neither do they spin. Soon, too soon, I entered the giddy whirl, forgetting my studious hours and the companionship of Adrian. Passionate desire of sympathy and ardent pursuit for a wish-for object still characterized me. The sight of beauty entranced me, and attractive manners and man or woman won my entire confidence. I called it rapture when a smile made my heart beat, and I felt the life's blood tingle in my frame when I approached the idol which for a while I worshipped. The mere flow of animal spirits was paradise, and at night's close I only desired a renewal of the intoxicating delusion. The dazzling light of ornamented rooms, lovely forms arrayed in splendid dresses, the motions of a dance, the voluptuous tones of exquisite music, cradled my senses in one delightful dream. And is not this in its kind happiness? I appeal to moralists and sages. I ask, if in the calm of their measured reveries, if in the deep meditations which fill their hours, they feel the ecstasy of a youthful tyro in the school of pleasure, can the calm beams of their heaven-seeking eyes equal the flashes of mingling passion which bind his, or does the influence of cold philosophy steep their soul in a joy equal to his engaged in this dear work of youthful revelry? But in truth, neither the lonely meditations of the hermit nor the tumultuous raptures of the reveller are capable of satisfying man's heart. From the one we gather unquiet speculation, from the other satiety. The mind flags beneath the weight of thought and droops in the heartless intercourse of those whose sole aim is amusement. There is no fruition in their vacant kindness, and sharp rocks lurk beneath the smiling ripples of these shallow waters. Thus I felt, when disappointment, weariness, and solitude drove me back upon my heart, to gather thence the joy of which it had become barren. My flagging spirits asked for something to speak to the affections, and not finding it, I drooped. Thus, notwithstanding the thoughtless delight that waited on its commencement, the impression I have of my life at Vienna is melancholy. Goethe has said that in youth we cannot be happy unless we love. I did not love, but I was devoured by a restless wish to be something to others. I became the victim of ingratitude and cold coquetry. Then I desponded and imagined that my discontent gave me a right to hate the world. I receded to solitude. I had recourse to my books, and my desire again to enjoy the society of Adrian became a burning thirst. Emulation, that in its excess almost assumed the venomous properties of envy, gave a sting to these feelings. At this period the name and exploits of one of my countrymen filled the world with admiration. Relations of what he had done, conjectures concerning his future actions, were the never-failing topics of the hour. I was not angry on my own account, but I felt as if the praises which this idol received were leaves torn from the laurels destined for Adrian. 
but I must enter into some account of this darling of fame, this favorite of the wonder-loving world. Lord Raymond was the sole remnant of a noble but impoverished family. From early youth he had considered his pedigree with complacency, and bitterly lamented his want of wealth. His first wish was aggrandizement, and the means that led towards this end were secondary considerations. Haughty, yet trembling to every demonstration of respect, ambitious, but too proud to shew his ambition, willing to achieve honor, yet a votary of pleasure, he entered upon life. He was met on the threshold by some insult, real or imaginary, some repulse, where he least expected it, some disappointment hard for his pride to bear. He writhed beneath an injury he was unable to revenge, and he quitted England with a vow not to return, till the good time should arrive when she might feel the power of him she now despised. He became an adventurer in the Greek wars. His reckless courage and comprehensive genius brought him into notice. He became the darling hero of this rising people. His foreign birth, and he refused to throw off his allegiance to his native country, alone prevented him from filling the first offices in the state. But, though others might rank higher in title and ceremony, Lord Raymond held a station above and beyond all this. He led the Greek armies to victory. Their triumphs were all his own. When he appeared, whole towns poured forth their population to meet him. New songs were adapted to their national airs, whose themes were his glory, valor, and munificence. A truce was concluded between the Greeks and the Turks. At the same time, Lord Raymond, by some unlooked-for chance, became the possessor of an immense fortune in England, whither he returned, crowned with glory, to receive the meed of honor and distinction before denied to his pretensions. His proud heart rebelled against this change. In what was the despised Raymond not the same? If the acquisition of power in the shape of wealth caused this alteration, that power should they feel as an iron yoke. Power, therefore, was the aim of all his endeavors, aggrandizement the mark at which he forever shot. In open ambition or close intrigue, his end was the same, to attain the first station in his own country. This account filled me with curiosity. The events that in succession followed his return to England gave me keener feelings. Among his other advantages, Lord Raymond was supremely handsome. Everyone admired him. Of women he was the idol. He was courteous, honey-tongued, an adept in fascinating arts. What could not this man achieve in the busy English world? Change succeeded to change. The entire history did not reach me, for Adrian had ceased to write, and Perdita was a laconic correspondent. The rumor went that Adrian had become, how write the fatal word, mad, that Lord Raymond was the favorite of the ex-queen, her daughter's destined husband. Nay, more, that this aspiring noble revived the claim of the House of Windsor to the crown, and that, on the event of Adrian's incurable disorder and his marriage with the sister, the brow of the ambitious Raymond might be encircled with the magic ring of regality. Such a tale filled the trumpet of many-voiced fame. Such a tale rendered my longer stay at Vienna, away from the friend of my youth, intolerable. Now I must fulfill my vow, now range myself at his side, and be his ally and support till death. Farewell to courtly pleasure, to politic intrigue, to the maze of passion and folly, all hail England! Native England, receive thy child! Thou art the scene of all my hopes, the mighty theatre on which is acted the only drama that can, heart and soul, bear me along with it in its development. A voice most irresistible, a power omnipotent, drew me thither. After an absence of two years I landed on its shores, not daring to make any inquiries, fearful of every remark. My first visit would be to my sister, who inhabited a little cottage, a part of Adrian's gift, 
on the borders of Windsor Forest. From her I should learn the truth concerning our protector. I should hear why she had withdrawn from the protection of Princess Evadne, and be instructed as to the influence which this overtopping and towering Raymond exercised over the fortunes of my friend. I had never before been in the neighborhood of Windsor. The fertility and beauty of the country around now struck me with admiration, which increased as I approached the antique wood. The ruins of majestic oaks, which had grown, flourished, and decayed during the progress of centuries, marked where the limits of the forest once reached, while the shattered palings and neglected underwood shewed that this part was deserted for the younger plantations, which owed their birth to the beginning of the nineteenth century, and now stood in the pride of maturity. Perdita's humble dwelling was situated on the skirts of the most ancient portion. Before it was stretched Bishopgate Heath, which towards the east appeared interminable, and was bounded to the west by Chapel Wood and the Grove of Virginia Water. Beyond, the cottage was shadowed by the venerable fathers of the forest, under which the deer came to graze, and which for the most part, hollow and decayed, formed fantastic groups which contrasted with the regular beauty of the younger trees. These, the offspring of a later period, stood erect and seemed ready to advance fearlessly into coming time, while those outworn stragglers, blasted and broke, clung to each other, their weak boughs sighing as the wind buffeted them, a weather-beaten crew. A light railing surrounded the garden of the cottage, which, low-roofed, seemed to submit to the majesty of nature, and cower amidst the venerable remains of the forgotten time. Flowers, the children of the spring, adorned her garden and casements. In the midst of lowliness there was an air of elegance which spoke the graceful taste of the inmate. With a beating heart I entered the enclosure. As I stood at the entrance I heard her voice, melodious as it had ever been, which before I saw her assured me of her welfare. A moment more and Perdita appeared. She stood before me in the fresh bloom of youthful womanhood, different from and yet the same as the mountain girl I had left. Her eyes could not be deeper than they were in childhood, nor her countenance more expressive, but the expression was changed and improved. Intelligence sat on her brow. When she smiled her face was embellished by the softest sensibility, and her low, modulated voice seemed tuned by love. Her person was formed in the most feminine proportions. She was not tall, but her mountain life had given freedom to her motions, so that her light step scarce made her footfall heard as she tripped across the hall to meet me. When we had parted I had clasped her to my bosom with unrestrained warmth. We met again, and new feelings were awakened. When each beheld the other, childhood passed, as full-grown actors on this changeful scene. The pause was but for a moment. The flood of association and natural feeling which had been checked again rushed in full tide upon our hearts, and with tenderest emotion we were swiftly locked in each other's embrace. This burst of passionate feeling over, with calm thoughts we sat together, talking of the past and present. I alluded to the coldness of her letters, but the few minutes we had spent together sufficiently explained the origin of this. New feelings had arisen within her, which she was unable to express in writing to one whom she had only known in childhood. But we saw each other again, and our intimacy was renewed as if nothing had intervened to check it. I detailed the incidents of my sojourn abroad, and then questioned her as to the changes that had taken place at home, the causes of Adrian's absence, and her secluded life. The tears that suffused my sister's eyes when I mentioned our friend, and her heightened color, seemed to vouch for the truth of the reports that had reached me. But their import was too terrible for me to give instant credit to my suspicion. Was there indeed anarchy in the sublime universe of Adrian's thoughts? Did madness scatter the well-appointed legions, 
and was he no longer the lord of his own soul? Beloved friend, this ill world was no climb for your gentle spirit. You delivered up its governance to false humanity, which stripped it of its leaves ere winter-time, and laid bare its quivering life to the evil ministration of roughest winds. Have those gentle eyes, those channels of the soul, lost their meaning? Or do they only in their glare disclose the horrible tale of its aberrations? Does that voice no longer discourse excellent music? Horrible, most horrible! I veil my eyes in terror of the change, and gushing tears bear witness to my sympathy for this unimaginable ruin. In obedience to my request, Perdita detailed the melancholy circumstances that led to this event. The frank and unsuspicious mind of Adrian, gifted as it was by every natural grace, endowed with transcendent powers of intellect, unblemished by the shadow of defect, unless his dreadless independence of thought was to be construed into one, was devoted, even as a victim to sacrifice, to his love for Evadne. He entrusted to her keeping the treasures of his soul, his aspirations after excellence, and his plans for the improvement of mankind. As manhood dawned upon him, his schemes and theories, far from being changed by personal and prudential motives, acquired new strength from the powers he felt arise within him, and his love for Evadne became deep-rooted, as he each day became more certain that the path he pursued was full of difficulty, and that he must seek his reward not in the applause or gratitude of his fellow-creatures, hardly in the success of his plans, but in the approbation of his own heart, and in her love and sympathy, which was to lighten every toil and recompense every sacrifice. In solitude, and through many wanderings afar from the haunts of men, he matured his views for the reform of the English government, and the improvement of the people. It would have been well if he had concealed his sentiments, until he had come into possession of the power which would secure their practical development. But he was impatient of the years that must intervene. He was frank of heart and fearless. He gave not only a brief denial to his mother's schemes, but published his intention of using his influence to diminish the power of the aristocracy, to effect a greater equalization of wealth and privilege, and to introduce a perfect system of republican government into England. At first his mother treated his theories as the wild ravings of inexperience, but they were so systematically arranged, and his arguments so well supported, that though still in appearance incredulous, she began to fear him. She tried to reason with him, and finding him inflexible, learned to hate him. Strange to say, this feeling was infectious. His enthusiasm for good which did not exist, his contempt for the sacredness of authority, his ardor and imprudence, were all at the antipodes of the usual routine of life. The worldly feared him. The young and inexperienced did not understand the lofty severity of his moral views, and disliked him as a being different from themselves. Evadne entered but coldly into his systems. She thought he did well to assert his own will, but she wished that will to have been more intelligible to the multitude. She had none of the spirit of a martyr, and did not incline to share the shame and defeat of a fallen patriot. She was aware of the purity of his motives, the generosity of his disposition, his true and ardent attachment to her, and she entertained a great affection for him. He repaid this spirit of kindness with the fondest gratitude, and made her the treasure-house of all his hopes. At this time Lord Raymond returned from Greece. No two persons could be more opposite than Adrian and he. With all the incongruities of his character, Raymond was emphatically a man of the world. His passions were violent, as these often obtained the mastery over him, he could not always square his conduct to the obvious line of self-interest, but self-gratification at least was the paramount object with him. 
He looked on the structure of society as but a part of the machinery which supported the web on which his life was traced. The earth was spread out as a highway for him, the heavens built up as a canopy for him. Adrian felt that he made a part of a great whole. He owned affinity not only with mankind, but all nature was akin to him. The mountains and sky were his friends, the winds of heaven and the offspring of earth his playmates, while he the focus only of this mighty mirror felt his life mingle with the universe of existence. His soul was sympathy, and dedicated to the worship of beauty and excellence. Adrian and Raymond now came into contact, and a spirit of aversion rose between them. Adrian despised the narrow views of the politician, and Raymond held in supreme contempt the benevolent visions of the philanthropist. With the coming of Raymond was formed the storm that laid waste at one fell blow the gardens of delight and sheltered paths which Adrian fancied that he had secured to himself as a refuge from defeat and contumely. Raymond, the deliverer of Greece, the graceful soldier, who bore in his mien a tinge of all that, peculiar to her native clime, Evadne cherished as most dear, Raymond was loved by Evadne. Overpowered by her new sensations, she did not pause to examine them, or to regulate her conduct by any sentiments except the tyrannical one which suddenly usurped the empire of her heart. She yielded to its influence, and the too natural consequence in a mind unattuned to soft emotions was, that the attentions of Adrian became distasteful to her. She grew capricious. Her gentle conduct towards him was exchanged for asperity and repulsive coldness. When she perceived the wild or pathetic appeal of his expressive countenance, she would relent, and for a while resume her ancient kindness. But these fluctuations shook to its depths the soul of the sensitive youth. He no longer deemed the world subject to him because he possessed Evadne's love. He felt in every nerve that the dire storms of the mental universe were about to attack his fragile being, which quivered at the expectation of its advent. Perdita, who then resided with Evadne, saw the torture that Adrian endured. She loved him as a kind elder brother, a relation to guide, protect, and instruct her, without the too frequent tyranny of parental authority. She adored his virtues, and with mixed contempt and indignation she saw Evadne pile dear sorrow on his head, for the sake of one who hardly marked her. In his solitary despair Adrian would often seek my sister, and in covered terms express his misery, while fortitude and agony divided the throne of his mind. Soon, alas, was one to conquer. Anger made no part of his emotion. With whom should he be angry? Not with Raymond, who was unconscious of the misery he occasioned. Not with Evadne. For her his soul wept tears of blood. Poor, mistaken girl. Slave, not tyrant, was she. And amidst his own anguish he grieved for her future destiny. Once a writing of his fell into Perdita's hand. It was blotted with tears. Well might any blot it with delight. Life, it began thus, is not the thing romance writers describe it going through the measures of a dance, and after various evolutions arriving at a conclusion, when the dancers may sit down and repose. While there is life, there is action and change. We go on, each thought linked to the one which was its parent, each act to a previous act. No joy or sorrow dies barren of progeny, which forever generated and generating weaves the chain that makes our life. Andia yama agortodia, ia si yama iancadena. Yanto a yanto, ipena a pena. Truly, disappointment is the guardian deity of human life. She sits at the threshold of unborn time and marshals the events as they come forth. Once my heart sat lightly in my bosom, 
All the beauty of the world was doubly beautiful, irradiated by the sunlight shed from my own soul. A wherefore our love and ruin forever joined in this our mortal dream. So that when we make our hearts a lair for that gently seeming beast, its companion enters with it, and pitiless lays waste what might have been a home and a shelter. By degrees his health was shaken by his misery, and then his intellect yielded to the same tyranny. His manners grew wild. He was sometimes ferocious, sometimes absorbed in speechless melancholy. Suddenly Evadne quitted London for Paris. He followed, and overtook her when the vessel was about to sail. None knew what passed between them, but Perdita had never seen him since. He lived in seclusion, no one knew where, attended by such persons as his mother selected for that purpose. End of Volume 1, Chapter 3